Well, unfortunately, the technical difficulties continue for Lisa Garvin. We thought she'd be joining us today, but she's continuing to work through them. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, Lisa Liss. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston and Layla Tassi, who know all about the news of the day, right? Yeah, first it's a snow day. That's our first news. House full of kids, <laughs> yeah. man. That's uh, oh, it was unexpected today. <laughs> Yeah, yesterday it's 55 degrees and it smells like spring. Today, back in the winter, unexpected snow day. But do, do, do your kids really, you know, the, are they happy about a snow day? Snow day. My wife was very excited, but she had this bittersweet moment. She was all dressed, ready to go. And then the call comes in. It's like, but I just got dressed. I'm all dressed up. She couldn't oh, no. go back to bed because, you know, you're up. But now you have a full day ahead yeah. of you. That's you're what already I said. dressed. It's like it. amazing. This is yeah. great, man. Free day. I wish we had snow days. I don't know. Maybe I can do something about mm. that in the future. All right, let's begin. Thursday was the deadline for Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and his fellow gerrymandering members of the redistricting commission to submit fair legislative maps to the Ohio Supreme Court. Laura, they defied the Ohio Supreme Court. We are officially in a constitutional crisis. Absolutely. That is the word I had written down, defied. The Republicans declared they had reached an impasse and they refused to follow the justices' orders. That And this was their second smackdown. They chose to throw the May election into greater uncertainty by basically throwing up their hands saying, we can't do this. Not even try to say, okay, here's our latest map. It's not exactly what you wanted, but it's the best we can do. I mean, literally, there is no legal map right now, which is just kind of mind-boggling. We knew in the fall this was going to be difficult. We've been covering redistricting for months and months and months. But I don't think anybody foresaw the Republicans basically thumbing their nose at the Supreme Court and the voters will, which the Supreme Court is working to uphold and just say, nope, we're not going to do it. No, they said they... It, it's, but it's worse than that, Laura. The, these guys in their grab to maintain an illegal balance of power are pushing the state to constitutional crisis. Not only did they violate the Constitution repeatedly, but they are breaking the government. The Supreme Court has the right to say, no, these maps don't match with the Constitution. Draw ones that do. And they've done that. And these guys have decided we're going to reject the rule of law. We're going to reject the Constitution and we're going to throw this state into chaos because we refuse to give up the unfair balance of power. This is one of the worst moments I've ever seen in Ohio government. And let's be clear, this is Governor Mike DeWine rejecting the rule of law. It is Auditor Keith Faber. It is Secretary of State Frank LaRose and the two guys who are the biggest villains in the history of Ohio government, it appears, Matt Huffman and Bob Cup, the Speaker and Senate President. Think about it. They have pushed us to the brink of a collapse of our government structure by refusing to follow it. Right. We can't have a we can't have an election if we don't know the boundaries. And you're right that I as much as I like to complain about Bob Cup and Matt Huffman, if Mike DeWine had taken a stand at any point and said, this is wrong, we need to follow the law, we need to follow the rule of the voters and come up with a map, they would have had to get in line. He's the governor. He's the head of their party. And and he's not doing it. Well, they just... What I love about this is, you know, the Supreme Court's going to have to decide what to do. I mean, they can hold these guys in contempt. And because Pat DeWine, the governor's son, broke with every precedent in history and violated the canons of his profession and stayed on the case, Pat DeWine could end up voting 
on whether or not to hold his father in contempt of the Ohio Supreme Court. Absolutely. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen next. Matt Huffman said he doesn't have a a next step. Um, Governor DeWine said he's not sure what's going to happen next. The League of Women Voters of Ohio, who is one of the plaintiffs in this case, said what I think what we're all thinking. She said, I find it incredibly regrettable that Ohio voters are being held hostage by politicians who care more about their own power than creating maps that the people deserve. And she's right. We are being held hostage. We've been hijacked by these Republicans who are just throwing the state into utter chaos and and doing it in a way that I don't know that everybody can see, but you're right. This is a constitutional crisis and and I don't know how it's going to get resolved. Well, they didn't even pretend, though. I mean, no, they no yesterday pretending. was the final day that they could get together because the deadline was nine o'clock this morning and they didn't even meet. Uh, you know, and then they get together. The Democrats at least tried to put up a map. And instead of talking about massaging it, making it work, they rejected it and then spent two hours saying your map is unfair and mm-hmm. didn't put anything else up. They didn't start 10 days ago when the map was rejected and say, OK, let's buckle down. Let's serve the citizens of this state. They're doing everything they can to get around the Supreme Court and creating a constitutional crisis. Bob Higgs did the story. I'm glad we did it, saying this is unprecedented. This is really unprecedented. We do see a bogus tactic that has just appeared this morning. Some Republican activists have gone to federal court to force the use of the gerrymandered map, saying that the voters of Ohio are being held hostage, basically. But Clearly, they want the federal gov- federal court to say, hey, that map the Ohio Supreme Court rejected as unfair. We have to have that as our map, like as a complete go around of this, the Ohio Supreme Court, which which is, is the ridiculous. Tactic. This is yeah. what the Republicans have decided. Let's if we can't get the Supreme Court to be our patsies, let's try and find somebody to go around them. I don't think that's going to work. I don't I think the federal court's going to say, no, you've got a process. Follow your process. The voters voted in big numbers for a process. You're just not your party's just not following it. And the the thing is, the Republicans are saying it's not possible. We can't draw the map the way the Supreme Court has instructed us to. First of all, they never tried. There was absolutely no working together. And the Democrats did put up a map that broke it down into a 54-46 split, which is the same as the statewide numbers. That's the goal we were getting to. And the Republicans just kept saying that 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 broke a partisan neutrality rule in the Constitution because 11 Republicans were either drawn into the same district or a Democratic-leaning district. So they're saying, oh, but our people are losing their seats. And Alison Russo, who is the House leader who's on this commission, was like, well, no, duh, guys, because if we're going to make it more fair, Republicans are going to lose their seats. Like, that's the whole point. Yeah. it's. I mean, it's really revealing about how power mad they are that they refuse to do what is right and what the voters want and what the Supreme Court has said they have to do to maintain this this unequal power. Um, I mean, they're just not serving the public. They're the kind of the worst public servants to sit in the state house probably ever. Uh, this is I don't know how the crisis ends. I, you know, does Maureen O'Connor say no, we're going to enforce the rule of law. You're going to do it. So, you know, and and use whatever tools she has. I don't know. And, and the plaintiffs in this case, they can they can ask the court to do something too. I mean, that's what Bob's story said earlier this week. Um, they have some some tools available to them. But you're right. This is you know 
we're standing on a, like a quick draw, right? Like who moves next? Well, the, the, the easiest thing to do would be say, OK, the Democrats and Republicans aren't going to work together. Both of you submit your maps and we'll pick the one we think is most fair. And if the Republicans don't, then the Supreme Court could use the most recent map they submitted. Take the Democratic map and say which one's more fair and pick that one. I mean, that that's if if the Republicans knew that was coming, maybe they would put together a map that makes more sense. I, I just it's stunning You know, Mike DeWine stood in front of us all day after day, pretending to be the hero of the coronavirus and, you know, wine with DeWine, aw shucks, and here's Fran, and, you know, pretending to be this this great leader. This is the worst level of leadership we've seen. He is he's, he's pushed us to the brink. And with that folksy demeanor and the I love county fairs and the here's Fran's recipe for whatever, (laughs) like he is. He has show, he's been this grandfatherly figure, right? Like, I just want what's best for my people. But it's very clear that he doesn't care about the people. He just wants to keep mm-hmm. his party in power. Okay, depressing day in Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How can Ohio Governor Mike DeWine unilaterally redraw the boundaries of the Ohio State School Board seats to make life much more difficult for the four members who supported an anti-racism resolution? Is this another form of DeWine gerrymandering? Layla Laura Hancock found this story, and it's a jaw-dropper. <laughs> this is what's happening know, with the school board. It is. So under the state law, Ohio must redraw its state school board boundaries every decade, and this happens after state legislative redistricting is completed because each school board district is made up of three state senate districts. If the General Assembly doesn't reapportion the districts, and this year it didn't, (laughs) the law says the governor must choose new boundaries by the end of January. So DeWine had released a letter January 31st describing the districts but he didn't include a map. So you had to kind of figure it out on your own. And it turns out that when you create the map, it shows that the districts that have been most dramatically changed in his plan are those of board members Merle Johnson of Cleveland, Dr. Christina Collins of Medina, Dr. Antoinette Miranda of Columbus, and Michelle Newman of Newark, which is outside of Columbus. All four of these members supported the July 14th, 2020 resolution that acknowledged racism and inequity in schools against black students, indigenous students, and students of color. And they also voted against the October 13th measure that rescinded that anti-racism resolution and that, that would replace it with a statement that seeks to promote academic excellence without, quote, respect to race, ethnicity, or creed. So, you know, critics say DeWine's map is the gerrymandering no one is talking about. They say it's based on a gerrymandered state Senate map, and it is, you know, it very well could help the election of conservatives to the board who are likely to politicize education. And, you know, it also makes it more difficult for black candidates to get elected from the from the Cleveland and Columbus areas, since those districts in DeWine's map now include exurban and rural areas. Interestingly, his proposal changed nearly every school board member's district to some degree, but most members maintain the general shape of their district or its characteristics. You know, for example, school school board members from rural areas got new boundaries, but they're still almost exclusively representing rural students. But that really wasn't the case for these districts we're talking about. In the case of Collins, who lives in Medina, DeWine redrew her district so that she doesn't even live in it anymore. I mean, in his letter, he assigned her to a district further to the south near Columbus. 
So really the problem here is twofold. Not only is it just that urban and suburban areas have been drawn in with exurban and rural areas, but also it dilutes the black vote. Right now, you know, Johnson and Miranda are two of three black school board members. Both are term limited in 2024. DeWine's proposed new districts could make it harder for black candidates to win. Yeah, I this is. This is a bit stunning because when the two school board members had to resign because they weren't going to be uh, approved by the the legislature, Mike DeWine pulled them aside and said, look, you're not going to get approved. And they decided to resign and go through the circus. And DeWine kind of played the victim there that, you know, we got no choice. We got to do something. This is a very proactive move Mm -hmm. to wipe out a diversity of opinions on this state school board and put in a whole bunch of people that are that are you know CRT nut jobs. It's like I I just don't get this. What 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 does he gain by doing this? Who is he playing to? And and it's offensive in the end. In the explanation, we had no choice. This is the way the maps yeah. rolled out. It's just not true. Uh, and he snuck it through. It's only because of Laura Hancock that anybody knows that this yeah, happened. Right. I mean, his spokesman denied that politics played a role in in these boundaries. He said. <laughs> He said that the Senate districts couldn't be split up on school board maps at each state school board district must contain three whole Senate districts. And when it comes to Franklin and Cuyahoga counties, each of those has more than three state Senate districts. So the counties can't remain whole for purposes of the state school board. I mean, it's just, you know, and you're right. The fact that he just he rolls this out in in like, you know, spells it out in, in a letter without a map, like sending people on a you know, a treasure hunt to try to find, it's like a scavenger hunt. Like you have to, you have to map it out yourself to, to realize how you're impacted. That's so sneaky. I mean, my feeling is, you know, DeWine is likely to face challengers in, in the governor's race who, who take strong positions against what they consider woke anti-racism policy. So he too is catering to voters who, who like that. Well, let me, right. But, let but he's me, not I, okay. he's not making like a public statement about it. You're right. He was so sneaky, so under the rug. We'll do it on the very last day. We won't talk about this at a public meeting. We won't announce it. I mean, how many press releases do we get about like economic development stuff from Mike DeWine? Like he didn't want people to know. And I, I don't think that there's an excuse for drawing somebody outside, like drawing boundaries for someone that doesn't right. live there. Like that is ridiculous. I mean, a couple of people were, there was like a woman who has four kids and a full-time job and now doesn't live Mm -hmm. in her district. And it's just, how is she going to represent that district? It's, it seems just absurd on its face. These two stories that we've talked about so far in this podcast, raise a question for me that, that I think is one that will be interesting to analyze. You know, they're clearly all of these guys, Dave Yost, everybody who is doing this wacky stuff of late is, is playing to the rural voter. The, mm-hmm. That has moved into the Trump's Trump is kind of philosophy, and they've they've kind of abandoned the Democrats, and the Democrats have abandoned them. But but do those voters not care about the rule of law? I mean, w- will they accept people playing as dirty as Dewine and his colleagues are playing and vote for him anyway? What's happening in both gerrymandering with this and with some of the other things we've talked about in this podcast is. They're they're playing dirty to maintain power. And it, will will voters say that's okay? The ends justify the means, play dirty uh, as you want? I think yes. I mean, I think that we've seen over the last five years the way that some people have voted that they 
they care more about themselves and how they they see themselves and who they identify with more than they care about yes, what is and right. And I think also because these these politicians are playing dirty to represent their interests, these voters' interests. And as long as that's the case, they're okay with it. Right. Totally with you. And they're not perceiving it as playing dirty. Like they think, I mean, look at the way the Republicans have said that the Supreme Court and the Democrats are trying to gerrymander. They're trying to paint them with the same brush. And it's really, if you were just listening to that group of people, then you could believe the other side is corrupt and you're the one who's playing on the straight and narrow. But this is such an overreach. It's such an abuse of power that I don't think anybody looking at it wouldn't see it as playing dirty. Look, everybody watched the Super Bowl on Sunday. And when Cincinnati went ahead, they went ahead on an uncalled face mask penalty. And you heard people talking, saying, well, that's not really fair. You shouldn't be able to win based on an uncalled penalty. And of course, they didn't win in the end and and karma prevailed. I I just I, I, I don't know. I'd love to talk to a voter, the voters that will vote for these guys, despite all of the dirty politics they're playing and, and justify it because it's that you shouldn't play dirty if you if you have a good platform if you believe in what you're doing you don't need to yeah, do but, the things these guys but if have that's done. your team aren't you grateful for the uncalled penalty i don't, I don't think the cincinnati fans were mad about yeah, that see, i mean that's what i'm talking about yeah Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about a happier story. (laughs) We had Beth Mooney as the longtime CEO of KeyBank. Now we have a Cleveland woman who will take the helm of all-American operations for the mammoth financial firm EY. And for those who don't know it, EY made the idiotic decision eight years ago to (laughs) rebrand itself from its well-known name, Ernst & Young. So if you don't know what EY is, you're like the rest of us, but it's a big firm. What is it about Cleveland, Laura, that produces women with brilliant minds for finance? I I don't know the answer to that specifically. I I had never heard Julie Boland's name before this, but she has been the U.S. chair and managing partner for EY. Sorry, that's what she will be. And that's a step up from her current role, which she is currently the vice chair and regional managing partner for the central United States. Uh, She takes this new role in July, and she'll lead the U.S. operations in all of the Americas with 81,000 employees in 31 countries. So she's been very active on many boards. She was in the Cleveland leadership class of 2006. She's been on the board of Destination Cleveland the Greater Cleveland Partnership, the 50 Club, Cleveland United Way. Um, and according to EY, she has more than 30 years of experience, began her year, her career as a CPA in the audit practice of a different big four firm. She has an MBA in finance and statistics from the University of Chicago. And she has she has four kids, which so I'm definitely in awe of this woman. I'm distressed you've not heard of her. I'm going to get you out more because she is well known in Cleveland. She's a a mover and a shaker. And this is a big deal. I mean, this is to take over that operation. You know, that's a big win for Cleveland. It's a big win for her. Congratulations to her. I'm sure she was hearing from a lot of her, her contemporaries in Cleveland about the big move. Yeah, she says she's committed to building a better working world by empowering and inspiring our people to realize their true potential. So round of applause for that. I'm all, all for inspiring people. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
There's great news as we head into the weekend for people in Cuyahoga County who want to get out of the house. Layla, what threshold did we slip beneath I, for the first time with coronavirus cases since last year? You July? know, it's funny because it's all relative, right? I mean, this I, this is the first bit of news that has really excited me about about COVID. But when you really think about it, we're still <laughs> we're still not totally out of the woods. But we haven't seen numbers like this since July, which was pre-Delta. Laura Hancock reports that the number of coronavirus cases per 100,000 residents fell statewide to 255.8 on Thursday from last week's 481. That's pretty dramatic. And in Cuyahoga County, the average was 97.5 cases per 100,000 residents. That's the first time in more than six months the county has seen levels below 100 cases per 100,000. Over 100, the CDC considers you to have a high infection rate. So we are now below that threshold of being considered highly infectious. <laughs> now, of course, you know, Omicron has pretty much burned out, but it's unknown whether COVID case levels will continue to drop. You know, the World Health Organization said a sub-variant of Omicron was increasing and is now dominant in several countries in Asia. So, you know, we might be, here we go again, right? But in the meantime, it feels pretty good to have a little break from that feeling that everywhere you go, you're likely surrounded by COVID. Caitlin Durbin reported yesterday that the Cuyahoga County Board of Health says Cuyahoga County's daily case count has fallen from 3,000 a day in January to just 28 cases as of Saturday. And that is an astounding drop. I mean, I'm really excited about that. So... It's not a little little step, though. I read a story this morning that said more than 70% of America is has the immunity. They either had Omicron or have other immunities. And so the, the epidemiologists are saying it'll be very hard for the next variant to get a footing because so many people now are protected. Now, how long that That's lasts? That's the key, and, though. You know, whether we all need boosters. But yeah, but for I now, mean, we know that, it's, that it's any good. immunity to COVID is not permanent. We know that. So if you're of the group that is, is relying upon catching COVID for your immunity, you're going to have to catch it again eventually. And then we're going to be eventually. in a surge again. So I'm not no, I'm but, not banking on this being like it's a new day for all. You know, we're <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, my brain has been rewired by this pandemic and I am cynical about I, this. I see where you're. <laughs> Outlook. I, I see where you're coming from, Layla. I'm really surprised by how fast everything changed. And I know Chris is going to say he predicted this and I get it. But the thing is, like, even Canada is dropping their requirement to get tested before going through the border. So it's like things that have been in place for a while now. You know, it's been two years since life was normal. And now it seems to be rapidly getting back there way faster than I thought it but would. Our numbers, we're, so, you know, we're saying like, this is comparable to July numbers. I don't remember in July being completely out of the woods. So, but kids weren't vaccinated in July. And I think there was, yeah. I mean, I know you're the youngest kids are still not going to be vaccinated till about April. And I think we need to recognize right, that. Enough, but that the the vaccine and the booster, I do think, has changed the game. Yeah, a, a last summer bit. we barely had the tools to deal with it. Now we have the tools to deal with it. There's medicines that deal with it if you get it. The, the, the we're ahead of the curve now on vaccinations. We have tests to find out. <laughs> Plus, it's a lot milder. It's you know it has weakened as coronaviruses do over time. You know this is this is really I think it. I think we're going to end up endemic. We'll all get the coronavirus. 
regularly over the rest of our lives, but it'll be much more in line with how we get head colds. I, it's just, it, it flamed out. It's, it's fascinating how quickly it has dropped and, you know, forget today, spring is not far. Warm weather is coming. Well, and we know last year, Chris, we were just, predicting July 4th would be our Independence Day from COVID. It was. Well, so it really, Dr. I Quinn. Mean, he wasn't wrong <laughs> I wasn't about wrong. that around that either but i think we're going to be seeing the effects of this for a really long time obviously we still don't know all the mental health effects all the education effects i know that hospitals are scheduling surgeries again because remember they stopped before the holidays because they were so Mm -hmm. overwhelmed but surgeries are delayed by months people aren't getting help so uh, there's still there's still covid reverberations to come for a long time you're listening to today in ohio How much is First Energy set aside to settle lawsuits with shareholders who say the company's corruption collapsed stock prices, costing shareholders millions? Lisa John Coniglia wrote this story up, (laughs) pulling it from some documents. What did I say? Well, Lisa, sorry. The ghost of Lisa. The ghost of Lisa, sorry. Go ahead, I'm sorry I interrupted. No, 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 so so First Energy says it's it's negotiating to settle lawsuits filed by ratepayers over over the House Bill Six scandal, and it's setting aside thirty seven point five million dollars for those damages. It, it, this we discovered this. Well, John Canigli discovered this in a notice with the Securities and Exchange Commission on Wednesday. The company said that it's likely to suffer a loss in connection with the resolution of these lawsuits, which were filed in federal courts in Cleveland and Columbus. And they said, quote, as a result, First Energy recognized in the fourth quarter of 2021 a pre-tax reserve of $37.5 million in the aggregate with respect to the cases. So the, this filing Wednesday with the SEC was, was made in relation to a case before Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Shannon Gallagher. That lawsuit is just one piece of all the litigation over House Bill 6. It includes cases filed by shareholders. And Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, he's been you know fighting to prevent the company from profiting off House Bill 6. The disclosure, though, offers kind of the first glimpse of how First Energy will handle these lawsuits related to this tainted legislation. The, the allegations claim that ratepayers should not bear the brunt of utilities' poor decision-making. So um, it really, I don't know. What do you think? 37.5, is that enough? <laughs> Well, it sounded low to me. It sounds I, low I to me too. That, yeah, I mean, it's it seems like they're they're being optimistic in what they they think the losses are. We'll see. I, you know, Laura, we talked earlier this week about or last week, I guess, about the settlement they were making with the share the the derivative shareholders. Mm-hmm. What a weird word. These were people that sued the executives to get back the losses that the utility suffered, and that was a right. lot more money. It's that was like, 180 million. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's like why? Why is the and company... that went right back to the company? <laughs> right. so, you know, and the and the losses that the company had include the shareholders' lawsuit. So I, it seems like they've got the money now from the insurance company to pay well, these losses they've got the money period what they make like 1.3 billion dollars last year it was a record so yeah, yeah. yeah but remember with the corruption they were in line to get billions mm. more it's like on their oh, ledger they're way Sarah down <laughs> they had visions of billions and billions through their corrupt practices you're listening to today in ohio how is sherwin williams coping with a strike that has taken 55 workers out of the equation at an aerosol camp plan in bedford heights laura the news about sherwin williams for a couple of years has been rah rah they're building a headquarters downtown not so much good news for him here 
Yeah, this is a strike that's happening in the Bedford Heights plant. It's an aerosol can plant. And they are going to resume bargaining next week in this labor dispute, but they've got a strike by 55 workers. They went on strike February 5th after talks failed to produce a new contract. That one expired in November 20th. They do say that other workers and supervisors are providing those aerosol can are producing those aerosol cans. So they have someone working, but they are trying to get together and the UAW has requested a federal mediator. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, let's give a sneak peek at a Caitlin Durbin story coming this weekend about what sounds like the squandering of tax dollars. (laughs) Don't give it all away, but let's tease it because it would be funny if it weren't so true. No. So, all right, let me think of how to say this without giving it all away. But starting around 2017, the county had, had begun permitting employees of the Adams Board to submit expense reports for wellness-related expenses. So the county says that the spirit of that article of the collective bargaining agreement was for training and development programs that could help you know, support a healthy, happy workforce. But it seems that provision might have been abused. Caitlin discovered that back in November, an Adams Board employee submitted an expense report for $750 worth of golf lessons (laughs) under that wellness provision. And when the county rejected that expense and kicked it back, the Adams Board argued that this wasn't the first time we've submitted expenses like that. <laughs> and then they provided examples of other similar expenses, and some of them right, are right, crazy. Right. Yeah, and that's right. where let's, I'll leave let's, it. Let's leave it there. Let's you gotta you gotta no, read yeah, com and a plain dealer this weekend. It's good. We'll talk about it next week, but let's leave uh, some mystery for what could be a great story. <laughs> Caitlin Durbin is on she fire. Is. She's the one that had the Bill Mason story, and she's the one that had the Brad Seller yeah, story. Yeah. Uh, she, she's, uh, she's been on our staff for only a couple of months, but, but everybody knows That's her right. name. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that does it for another week of news. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to the missing Lisa Garvin. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. <laughs>